I'm Corrine Linz, and you're listening to Infraintelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, love it or hate it, better public transit means less congestion, faster commute times, higher productivity, and lower emissions. Simply put, better public transit improves the quality of life for many Canadians and has the potential to make a huge difference in the fight against climate change. In the following discussion, we tackle the big issues of funding, electrification, shuttle services, wayfinding, parking, and even the biggest question of them all, why does public transit take so long to build? Good morning, and welcome to Renew Canada's Infraintelligence series. My name is Green Lentz, and I'm the content director here at Actual Media. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion on what's driving public transit. This is our second Infraintelligence webinar of 2022. In January, we hosted a really interesting discussion on disaster resilient infrastructure. If you missed it, you can still access the recording of that session on Renew Canada's event page. Today, we're switching focus to a topic that is near and dear to many hearts and deeply frustrating to others, but public transit. Better transit means less congestion, faster commute times, higher productivity, and lower emissions. Simply put, better transit improves the quality of lives for many Canadians and has the potential to make a really big difference in the fight against climate change. We have an impressive lineup of speakers joining us for today's conversation. But before I jump in and introduce them, I would like to take a few moments to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous people of Canada as the original stewards of this great country. I'm here in Toronto, which is located on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We all share in the responsibility of our natural infrastructure, and there is much we can learn from the traditional knowledge of the land, water, and materials that allow us to build projects, like public transit, that benefit all Canadians. All right, so let's meet our experts. I'm going to begin by inviting each of our panelists to the screen. Once they're all on screen, I'll have each of them spend just a couple of moments to introduce themselves and tell us a bit about where they're from, what their role is, and what perspective they're bringing to today's discussion. First up, we have David Hubner from Infrastructure BC, and then we have Josepha Petrunek from Kidrick, and then we have Scott Gilner from Brampton Transit, and last but not least is Kaya Sabag from Metrolinx. David, will you kick us off and uh, take a moment to introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you're from? Absolutely. Thanks, Corinne. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is David Hubner. I'm Vice President with Infrastructure BC uh, in Vancouver this morning where it's not raining, which is great. Um, I've been working with Infrastructure BC for the last 15 years and been involved in quite a few of the most recent uh, transit projects uh, that we have going on uh, with the SkyTrain uh, extension. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the discussion uh, today. Great, thank you. Josepha, you're up next, please. Thanks so much, uh, Corinne. I'm Josepha Petage. I'm the president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. And for short, we call it QTRIC. Uh, we're a nonprofit national technology consortium. So all we do is technology projects, including a pan-Canadian electric bus demonstration project with Brampton Transit, my colleague Scott Gilner here on the line today, as well as a pan-Canadian hydrogen fuel cell bus demonstration project that Mississauga is leading with My Way Transit. So happy to be here today. Thank you so much. All right, Scott, you're up. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott Gilner. I'm a senior policy advisor with Brampton Transit, and I work within our transit leadership team to help support a number of key initiatives, um, and especially being you know, the electrification of transit, uh, growing our system, and uh, preparing for the new uh, here Ontario LRT that's going to be coming up to Brampton and hopefully one day through Brampton. Um, as well as a lot of the, the BRT systems that we're looking at along Queen Street and helping move a lot of people and uh, supporting the interregional and provincial transit initiatives. Great, thank you. And Kaya. Hi, everyone. I'm Kaya. I lead a team at Metrolinx that evaluates different project options to provide evidence and advice to decision makers on their trade offs. And the outcome of that work, you may be familiar. With these, they are public business cases available on Metrolinx's website. Prior to my life in the public sector as a consultant, I supported transit agencies across Canada in planning, deliberating, and operating conventional and accessible transit services. But the perspective I bring today is really on that first piece, the planning perspective. So looking forward to diving in. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Um, Building modern transit systems is no small challenge. It takes decades of continuous planning and design to deliver 
right across Canada. Local governments are looking to drive the next wave of systems, expansions to build better lives for growing populations. It's been a couple of crazy years. I think we can all probably agree on that one. But let's talk about the path forward and how we can continue to plan, build and finance the key projects that the public wants and our, and our environment needs. Um, from my experience, these hour-long webinars tend to go by in a flash. So let's dig in with some big questions up front. Despite the current federal government's 10-year federal transit plan, building modern transit takes decades of planning, design, delivery. Some have called for a permanent federal funding mechanism for public transit. Is that the best path forward? Uh, I don't know, maybe David or Scott, maybe you guys want to take a first stab at that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So I I think the um, the predictability of um, funding is is really key because, like you say, um, all of the all of the transit, whether it's you know interregional or regional rapid transit like SkyTrain, or whether it's um, local bus transit within a municipality, it's very impactful um, in the respective communities. And increasingly, the the projects are more and more uh, complex, and so. In order to deal with them effectively, everything has to start uh, really early, and uh, needs to it needs to fit together, and all of that work takes time and it, it takes money. And I think that the, the the federal funding and the provincial funding matching and municipal funding working together, I think really the the federal funding is a key catalyst for all of that work and all of that thinking. And so, I think the the long term predictability just helps with aligning everything, getting started in a, in a kind of a measured and a, and a disciplined way that supports, um, you know, everything fitting together. And within, you know, from a British Columbia perspective, being able to look at it and, and more broadly how it fits in with a, with a national approach. So not just like long-term predictability of funding, but, you know, just where that's being allocated it's, you know, would be, that would be great. Scott, yeah, would you I mean, like to add that? Yeah, absolutely. I could build on that. So I think, you know, absolutely agree with David in terms of the sustainability piece um, or the predictability piece. But in addition, I think sustainability is a big factor in this as well. It has to be long-term. Uh, it has to be easily accessible and coordinated amongst the various programs. Um, a lot of them are intertwined and they need to kind of function as a whole uh, and make it easy for municipalities uh, to to access these these funds. Um, you know, I think in terms of uh, North America and Europe, it's really difficult for public transit operators to actually make any money. Um, and you know, in Brampton's case, where we're covering about fifty percent of our cost through revenues through fare revenues, so fifty percent RC ratio. And um, you know, we do earn revenues and we help spur growth and ultimately it benefits our economy, but um, our budgets aren't, you know, structured such that um, we end up with positive revenues that can help pay for capital, for example. So I think capital funding is, is absolutely crucial. And I also think operating funding, um, and we, we've seen this heightened through the pandemic, we need assistance with operating funding as well. Um, that, again, is sustainable, predictable, long-term, and easily accessible. And maybe I'll wrap up my comment before turning it to, to others. But, um, <laughs> I think that the funding that does get dispersed has to be equitably distributed. Um, so if you look you know, holistically through structured programs like PTIF or ICIP or the new ZETF, um, you know, those funding programs are, are done through a, a formula-based model, uh, but there are funds allocated to uh, municipal transit projects that aren't part of those, those programs. And those funds are cr crucial to municipalities' ability to uh, execute these high level projects. And so I think equitable funding across the board, you know, either based on ridership or growth or population. I mean, Brampton Transit is the largest growing transit system in Canada. And, uh, you know, a fair share would, would be uh, more than welcomed in terms of the, the federal provincial funding that we'd be receiving. Kareen, I have something to say about that too, though. <laughs> maybe maybe build on it. I'm not going to repeat because I think what Scott and David said is right. Like sustainable funding is really important. But I do have three core points that come out of that. One is the sustainable funding, just to put it in context for infrastructure people on the line. You know, at QTRIC, we do technology innovation, right? The electric bus, the fuel cell bus stuff. And we've long talked about, like the Canadians have long talked about sustainable public transit funding. 
Um, but right now there's 2.75 billion for electrified transit specifically. And the first thing people will tell you is start adding up the money to electrify the depot, some buses at TTC, throw in some transit buses. That money disappears really quickly in a couple of years. It's going to have to be three, four, five times that price to electrify the country, just as an example from an infrastructure standpoint. So the three billion per year, 2026 onward, is really important because the 2.75 billion right now is a drop in the bucket. Agencies that are doing this really complicated engineering infrastructure work need to know that 2026, 2027, 2028 comes around. There's still going to be ongoing billions of dollars for this electrification decarbonization because that's what it's going to take. So that, I would say, is the first thing. The complexity of the technology ahead requires sustainable funding. Other words, total failure. We might as well say we're not achieving Paris climate commitments because it's not going to happen. The second thing, though, I would say allied to that is there has to be a real deep PR component around it. Like as Canadians, you know, whenever a political party shows up and says, you know, we're going to play around with healthcare, we don't vote them into power in general. And, and that's because we take it so deeply as part of our psyche that we have public health care and public education. Public transit needs to be part of that psyche, because what we wouldn't want to see is right now a liberal government has announced permanent funding, but any other government could undo that in the future. And that has to get to a stage of PR where this infrastructure spending for public transit is not un not undoable by any other party. It doesn't become a political bargaining chip. But I conclude on saying like, and this is a third world or first world problem, say what well, we got billions of money, but there's still problems. Uh, well, there is still problems. And this is the third point I point out about like, is the permanent funding enough? No, it's a first world problem to complain about this, but I'm gonna complain about it anyhow. <laughs> Uh, I, I live in Toronto or have for a long time, lived in London, lived in Berlin, lived in Paris. I'm a big city girl. I don't understand why people would buy cars when I lived in a big city. And during the pandemic, I did what a lot of people did, left Toronto, got a house in St. Catharines. You cannot get anywhere on public transit in a reasonable amount of time in just a suburb of Toronto, a kind of equivalent if we think about GTHA. So I think the third point to raise is the money is great but we actually are gonna need those hardcore, politically unsavory policies of things like what Paris is doing, the 15 minute city. The city where in St. Catharines, I can walk out my door and I don't need a car. I do have buses and streetcars and transit and coach and train. And that doesn't exist in the bulk of Canada outside of Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton and Winnipeg. So, you know, outside of those cities, we've got much more than just permanent transit funding as an issue. We've got a city design issue that makes it impossible for transit to be your primary solution, even when you're an ideologue like me about public transit. Great, thank you. Okay, uh, so last year, the we already talked about this a little bit, so we'll, I'll ask the question and we can kind of modify as we go through. Last year, the government of Canada created a 2.75 billion zero emission transit fund, as well as announcing a 1.5 billion investment through the Canada Infrastructure Bank's growth plan with climate change front of mind for so many. How can public transit projects help Canada reach its goals? And I feel like, uh, I think all of you are going to want to join in on this one. Um, I don't know. Who wants to go first? I, I could just maybe pick up just on the, the recent part of the, sure. the conversation. So I think the, the public transit, I think the, one of the key things is, is getting people out of cars like we were just talking about. And, you know, thinking about in, in the region here and just the comment about kind of the PR is is the uh, the idea of just having it always be part of the conversation and always be socializing about transit and having it in the forefront so in in bc and in, in the lower mainland we've had a a, a regional plan um, for quite a long time and a, a transit 2021 plan which actually was back in 93 was talking about reducing um, air pollution but now we're talking about um we're talking about climate change and so just having those um, broad long-term plans and visions that put transit at the forefront and it's an integrated part of the, the city shaping. So here we've got this idea of transit-oriented development and these hubs um, around stations where people can live and you know they can work and they can walk to transit and that all of that is integrated. So it's just always part of the story. So I think you know moving towards this idea of you know, use the healthcare example, but, you know, transit is critical and it's just part of what people are talking about. So, you know, when someone's saying that we're going to do this or that, well, what about transit? How am I, how am I going to get on transit? And and I think that sort of underlying 
mindset is what you know is what's going to be needed to get people to kind of believe that they can take transit that you know and then when you build it people are going to use it um to get people to like not even buy a car like we're talking about here um i think increasingly you know younger people they don't even think about buying cars but the it's got to be part of that broader picture that people are always thinking about Maybe, Corinne, I can add some numbers to it just to help people contextualize it. Um, the $2.75 billion is a fund that, you know, we spent a lot of time helping Minister McKenna and her team devise that actual number. And over the Christmas of 2020, that first pandemic uh, Christmas, you know, we were crunching numbers and we were working late at the office because they wanted to announce a fund. And it was really how many billions of dollars were needed. Now, we pitched forward $4 billion. We got $2.75 billion. Happy with that to start, but it tells you basically the costs at play. And to put some numbers to it, the reason we put $4 billion forward and we shared these economic reports with the ministry was, look, take just TTC. TTC, biggest transit in the country, but still just one agency, about 2,000 buses. Each bus to electrify is about a million dollars. That's $2 billion just to buy electric buses. Not the chargers, not the energy storage devices, not the software, not the facility modification. Then you look at a facility, a depot, and they've got like a bunch of depots, I think eight divisions, nine divisions. And one facility, our agencies were telling us, could be anywhere from 150 million to 350 million to overhaul a facility. So multiply that out by just a few facilities at TTC. That's another billion dollars, $3 billion just to electrify TTC without hydrogen buses, without electrolyzers, without a hydrogen fuel cell supply chain, which they need, uh, and without en route chargers, which are each themselves a million dollars a piece, which they will need one per 12 buses. So already you're talking about four or five billion dollars just to electrify TTC. The whole federal fund for all of Canada is 2.75 billion. So uh, hopefully that puts in perspective how much is going to be needed. Now, there are returns on investment. There are savings over time. We know that will start to happen, especially as price points come down. But the upfront investment in the next 10 years by Canadian taxpayers has to be in those billions and billions of dollars. And that's why I said 2.75, good start, but a drop in the bucket to get to 2030, because really only TTC could absorb all of that and still not be fully electrified. Yeah, so I think just building on that, I completely agree with what Yosipa is saying. And, you know, I, we look at the horizon and, you know, that $2.75 billion is part of the bigger picture of the, the $14.9 billion that was announced uh, for transit funding um, with, I think it's $3 billion per year starting in 2027 uh, for the five years out. So it, it leaves, you know, $5.9 billion on the table of unallocated funding. And, you know, we're very hopeful that uh, some of the municipalities that are, you know, forward thinking and willing to take shared risk and, and moving the needle on electrification and reducing GHGs gets a, a good share of that uh, $5.9 billion to help us build out that infrastructure that Yasupa was talking about. It's really interesting listening to you all speak. We all bring such different perspectives here. And if we sort of zoom out, of course, uh, electric vehicles are a huge part of the sustainability equation. There's even more if we just zoom out a little bit and thinking about how sustainability factors into my world, my small little piece of the pie on the planning side, sustainability has always been one of the core tenets of our work. It's really one of the main pillars that supports all of our analyses and how we plan our systems for the future. So for example, in our business cases, we of course consider the changes in, in vehicle kilometers traveled, how many people were, were planning to get out of cars and onto buses. Um, but even beyond that, if we think about our, our transit-oriented community-focused uh, development, so our GO Rail stations are now delivered with a focus on transit-oriented development around those station areas. And I think that's actually a, a kind of perfect example of sustainability with true consideration for the three factors that make it up. So considering economic development, um, sustainable communities, and uh, helping people to get around uh, more efficiently, I think that's a great example of of uh, a big picture perspective on sustainability. And then also if we think about the GO expansion program, I mean, electrifying uh, a handful of our corridors is certainly no small feat. And, and so even outside of the, uh, the electric bus world, there's lots happening in terms of sustainability there. We have a couple of questions from the audience here. I think we'll pop one in right now. All right, so please comment. Electrification, not just transportation, but everything. 
where is the concurrent and detailed plan where all the electricity will be coming from, uh, maximize green energy, but there will be then be an energy deficit that needs to be an integral part of any transportation plan. Lots of question marks. <laughs> I'm happy to kick off on that. Just yeah, from a go for it. Standpoint. Um, across Canada, you know, I was just on another panel with NRCAN right before this in the morning talking about the exact same issue. Uh, in Canada right now, if we wanted to electrify the bulk of our transit system, we would be fine. It's not a capacity issue right now from a mathematical standpoint. The problem is, of course, as many of you are aware, delivering the electrons at exactly the time needed and not at the time when it's capacity constrained on the grid. So we have that capacity. What we don't have is the smart charging, the energy storage, the demand management programs, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be a huge part of shaving the peak load. And managing that peak load is what's going to help most transit agencies electrify. Now, if we go beyond transit, we're adding cars and trucks and hydrogen electrolyzers, all of which are pulling on the grid. For sure, we have a capacity issue in the country over the next decades. But that issue already existed in the last 10, 20 years. You can look at any IESO report. Any regulator across Canada was saying, look, we're building houses with televisions and pools and even the small electric cars starting. Our houses and our communities are consuming so much more energy than ever before. The grid was already creaking along. And we've got this 1960s infrastructure throughout the bulk of the country that was already creaking along in terms of capacity constraints or breakdowns and large scale infrastructure investment needs before electrification kind of hit the ground running in 2017, 2018, then with the Paris climate commitments. So I would say right now, it's not like we're, you know, there's a few regions in Eastern Europe, in Africa, Southeast Asia, where there are serious capacity constraints where you just can't electrify today. There's not enough capacity. Canada can start. There's no reason why we need to sit down and sit on our hands and say we can't start because capacity. We can, but I would say the issue is going to become catastrophic in the next 10 to 15 years if we don't start investing on the electrical side which 10 provinces and 10 ministries of energy need to figure out ASAP uh, because it's not just the cars coming around the corner and the buses and coaches and trains. It's also all the other electronics that we already knew were drawing on our grid system. Anyone else want to jump on that one too? It actually rolls perfectly into our next question. <laughs> so there's no doubt these projects are massive and they require collaboration from many stakeholders. Uh, I know we we're talking about electrifying rails and adding station, adding fleets of trains. How can all levels of government and other industry stakeholders work together to ensure the right projects are built on time and on budget? What planning is required for successful and timely outcomes? And I know, Kaya, you're the planner in the bunch here. We're talking planning. Would you like to see yeah, the chat? Sure, I can kick this one off. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, collaboration between different levels of government is a given for us. This happens on all of our projects. And I think what's important is considering integration. So when we think about different um, different municipalities, we need to think about how the different transit systems fit together. And, and when we think about planning these big projects in a way that works well, we need to think about four different aspects of integration, I would say. Um, so firstly, the infrastructure side, so designing for easy transfers between systems, between services. So if you get off your bus, making sure it's really easy to get into the subway station from that same corner thinking about fares, and there's tons of work underway. Everyone in the GTHA knows this has been a hot topic for many years. Thinking about scheduling. So if I get off a GO train in Bramalee, knowing that there's a Brampton Transit bus coming to pick me up in the next five, 10 minutes, and then wayfinding. So providing transit maps and directions that are easy to navigate, regardless of if you're looking for a TTC stop or a Brampton Transit stop, you have all the information there. Um, so I think while different levels of government, you know, we all focus on our own projects, the collaboration is really critical in ensuring that those those points of integration happen seamlessly. And I think that is uh, a really important um, factor to ensure seamless transit across our region. Fantastic. I think listening to the, the question, I think there was two parts. Um, yeah. and, and one about the electrific, electrification, and I, I think part of the conversation so far has been, you know, having some consistency with with funding and the allocation and the timing and fitting in with planning. Um, but at sort of a basic level, some you know, thinking about things like standardization of, of technology where you've got the federal government putting in money that, you know, jurisdictions aren't having to reinvent the wheel um, and that there's potentially some interoper interoperability and, and understanding sort of the full life cycle of the technology because we're talking about reducing 
carbon, but at the same time, you know, what's the life of the batteries and then what happens to them, you know, when, when you have to change them out and, and just what's sort of the, the, the long run op operating costs um, and having consistency there is, is maybe one thing. Um, and then I think the second part of the question was about kind of schedule and budget. And I think, you know, the being on time and, and being on budget is really about, and I apologize if it sounds a bit glib, but it's really about having the right schedule and having the right budget um, at the outset. And as these projects increasingly get more and more um, complex in terms of um, just the physical uh, construction and then, and then you know, with the stakeholders and the impacts, um, just kind of getting back to, to starting early and really, you know, digging deep into understanding, you know, things like, um, you know, permitting and utility risk and a lot of these things that come up and can foible things quite easily. And I think increasingly looking at starting work um, early as, as owners to facilitate a contractor coming in and doing a project and kind of focusing on, on, on what they need to do. And part of that speaks to the, the timing and the amount of funding that it can facilitate robust planning, setting the stage, you know, doing some early work and then, you know, the actual construction contract and just being realistic about what the risks are and, and what the timelines um, can be. So I think, you know, as we go through these projects, I think it's becoming more and more clear, but just being above board about about timelines. And it, it does come into this the point um, that was made earlier about, um, you know, with with changing of governments, like these projects quite often now, they, they vastly surpass, you know, any kind of a four-year uh, term. So, you know, being on being on budget and being on schedule, there needs to be some kind of understanding that this is a priority and there's going to be a commitment to seeing it through. Uh, may I add a point though uh, on this? And I think great points there, David. And I'm going to take it future forward. So I I don't have expertise in building hospitals or building highways and like build it and then you leave and it's done like static infrastructure. But what I do have expertise is in looking at the build and the dynamic ongoing life of these technology integration projects that are infrastructure plus operations and maintenance for the long term. And when we look at that stuff, like let's just take TransLink as an example or Brampton with the electric bus integration that we did and going forward, a lot of it's going to be turnkey stuff where you're looking for consortium partners to come to you as an agency, uh, build the charging system, build, bring the buses to the table, do the operations and maintenance and carry forward the whole service with either on behalf of your agency or with your agency. What we have now circa 2022 that we didn't have 20 years ago or even 10 years ago is really powerful data analytics. You could put a logger on everything. You can put a logging device that tracks the performance of any kind of infrastructure. You can put a sensor on any infrastructure to check the performance, whether it's the heating system of a building or the powertrain performance of a bus. And because we have that amount of data sophistication and logging, I actually think if coming from my position of ignorance, not having built this big stuff from an infrastructure company like an AECOM or an SNC-Lavalin or any of the other partners out there that might invest in these kinds of things, coming from our end of the equation, we can see that there's a whole new transparent world where municipalities and transit agencies and the clients of the infrastructure providers and the vendors um, can now track performance and hold companies to account in a way that was not possible before. And so by that, I mean, if you are winning a contract to build a bunch of charging systems, overhead rafters, facility update and bus uh, deployments, we can now track pretty much every iota of performance of that facility, that bus, that charger. Is it time to really take a look at some of the new kind of penalty measures that are possible? Now, I've said it before, I'm the child of immigrants, so I believe in the stick over the carrot. But the stick has a certain amount of value to the taxpayer because these projects are complicated. I get it. It's hard to predict all the budget overruns and cost overruns and complexities before you dig, dig a hole and find out what's underneath the streets of Toronto. But on the other side of it, there's a lot of tracking that cities and, and the customers can do now. And is there space now in these multi-billion dollar projects to actually have penalty measures that come into effect years after the stuff is built? Because the performance of the stuff is not what you were promised when you, when you awarded the contract in the first instance. So I'd put that forward because at a micro level, we're seeing that that is possible. 
in the bus domain and the charger domain, is it possible a larger aggregate facility turnkey solution, mega billion dollar arrangement? I suspect so. Yeah, and I think just building on that, those are all excellent comments. Um, and I guess the overall theme for us is that, uh, you know, in order to plan these complex projects and execute them, um, you know, you really have to look at the total life cycle of the project, right from, you know, early days concepts, uh, you know, through the funding requests and really trying to align the stars between all the various funding and perhaps potentially financing or P3 opportunities that, that exist. Um, you know, both at the provincial, potentially federal and, and municipal levels and aligning all of all of that together in order to even move into the planning stages. And then, you know, once you get there, you've got all the legal issues that you have to contend with, uh, which are all kind of self-serving legal issues and, and bureaucratic, to be honest. Um, and, you know, to, for good reason. Um, but all the legals have to work together in forming the agreements and, you know, the procurement aspects before you even get to the design and construction aspects. So, I think it is a, a hugely complex model. Um, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, really a, a good show of good faith or a level of good faith needs to be uh, continued between the various levels of government to see these projects come to fruition. Because, you know, if we waited for all agreements to be signed and everything crossed, you know, all the T's crossed, I's dotted, we'd never get anything built. And, you know, a good example of that in Brampton is the your Ontario LRT that's being uh, designed and constructed. Uh, we're proceeding on the basis of, of, of without a, you know, a formal implementation agreement. So our, all parties are at the table. We're designing and, and, and preparing for construct. We, we are constructing. Um, and, and that's all in the absence of this implementation agreement. So, you know, that sign of good faith is there. We want to get this thing built as soon as possible for the greater good. And we know all the legal stuff will eventually come together. Um, but we're taking that leap of faith and, and moving the, that project uh, forward specifically. All right. Uh, okay, let's take a look at our ask a question box here and see what we got. Uh, so I've got there are issues with support systems as well, such as parking for park and ride in large cities. How has this been incorporated in the short term and long term plans? So, I mean, at the local level, I'll take that one. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's extremely important um, that investments continue to be made at the local level uh, to provide the, the feeder buses that are required to sustain these larger mass transit systems. You know, the first mile, last mile. And, you know, moving away from, you know, building parking structures and parking spaces um, into more holistic, sustainable transit um, is the direction that we'd like to go. And, and certainly, you know, welcome uh, continuing to work with Metrolinx on those um, and maybe even repurpose some of the parking structures that Metrolinx own, because I think they're the largest uh, parking uh, provider in North America now. So we want to train, change that long term, I think. Thank you, Scott, for uh, for segueing well into my comments. This is a great example, actually, of how two different government agencies work together on an ongoing basis. So, one of uh, one of our other planning teams at Metrolinx is really focused on this exact issue. So, how do people get to stations in a future where we hope that not everyone will drive? We've recognized that uh, Metrolinx isn't necessarily the uh, or our objective isn't necessarily to be the biggest parking provider. It's just sort of a, a secondary thing that has fallen out of needing to provide a way to get to our stations. So a big stream of work over the last couple of years has been how do our customers get to our stations in the future in a way uh, that doesn't require this constant expansion of parking lots. So there is uh, an ambitious plan in place to increase the amount of our customers who get to stations by sustainable modes like biking and walking. We've done a ton of collaboration with municipal agencies, just like Brampton Transit to say, all right, in 2041, how many bus bays do you think you need at the station to be able to provide an adequate level of service? Um, so these are absolutely things that are, are in the works every day. Uh, may I just add an example though, about what happens on the back end, like the complexity of that, because I think kind of what you've noted is really great policies, but then let's say we go beyond, uh, cycling and walking because you know, certain radius people can cycle and walk to a transit stop outside of that. People are driving, which is why you provide so many parking lots. Um, one of the in-between options as a microcosmic example of infrastructure challenges ahead that are multi-jurisdictional is the autonomous low-speed shuttle. Well, we know in Canada, these have all pretty much failed to produce any kind of integration of low-speed autonomous shuttles. They're here today, gone tomorrow pilots. Even in Toronto, the pilot was cancelled after two months because of a problem with the manufacturer. 
same thing in Durham. Uh, these are not sustainable deployments. And in a big in a project that we're leading right now with York Region and City of Markham, it's greatly exemplary of the infrastructure problems in solving the, I, the issue you just identified, Kai. How do people get to, say, the York Region GO stations, right, that are up there in that part of the city? Well, one issue is when you look at the houses around the GO stations up there, there's Highway 7, which is always congested, and there's almost no room to take any roadway off of that. And there's very few like sidewalks that can allow people to safely cross that highway to get into the GO stations. So a small, low-speed autonomous shuttle that circles a few local communities that allows people to be able to get to the station without having to wait 45 minutes for the one bus that might take them in a circuitous route to that station, it could work. But when you look at the roadway, you know, folks at the city of Markham, quite rightly, don't want to do anything that adds more to congestion. But these autonomous shuttles need dedicated laneway to be able to move at their 15 kilometer, 20 kilometer an hour click. Dedicated laneway means taking road away from car drivers. So it comes down to an infrastructure choice to redesign our streets, to create dedicated laneway, to get people to go station so you can reduce your parking spots. But the political issue on the back end is creating more congestion or at least reducing road space, which will create a year or two before congestion drops off and really angry voters who don't want their car space removed. And Highway 7 is a great example of car central York region Markham, where you you will struggle as a municipal politician to get people to vote for reducing car space on that road. But that's what you need to get low speed shuttles to the GO station. So that's just a micro example of like the city streets need to be redesigned. The dedication of transit services needs to be prioritized over cars. And all of this leads back to cars need to be deprioritized and the voter has to be convinced that it's the least preferable mode to a transit hub. How do we do that? That is a tough one. Uh, so the policies are great, but the, the actual implementation is riddled with these municipal political issues of deprioritizing the car driver. Yeah, it's, it's interesting here, there's a lot of emphasis on not going as far as like a dedicated laneway for an autonomous bus, but for um, active transportation. So you can you can kind of appeal to a lot of people, whether or not they're trying to get to a transit hub, but you know, they just want to go for a walk or they want to jog or they want to ride their bike. But one thing I find really interesting, having commuted for several years by bike, well, at least part of the way is the, the advent of the electric bike. And there's just more and more people so that if, if, if there's an active transportation component, I think it's actually quite realistic for people to hop on their electric bike and get from A to B without even without even breaking a sweat. And if there's somewhere they can lock it up um, safely, it just kind of fits into that that last mile uh, discussion. But it's incredible, or whether it's, um, you know, scooters or those little one wheel things that people stand on, that there's, it seems to just be more and more people that are um, getting from A to B that way. Um, and just recently, I was, I was you know, I was listening to your comment about being in the suburb in St. Catharines. So I live in a bedroom community north of Vancouver, and one of the impressive transit innovations I saw on innovation that I saw recently was just at a bus stop, um, putting up a covered uh, covered bus stop with a that was well lit. You know, that people can go and stand and, and feel safe and feel dry, and then in conjunction with the uh, you know, the app to know that a bus is coming in five minutes. You don't have to go and stand there for half an hour thinking that you're not, uh, you know, so you don't miss it. But all these little details um, working together, I think it's going to be really beneficial. Certainly improving the user experience. All right, uh, let's get back to our originally programmed questions for a moment. In 2021, Brampton Transit joined TransLink and York Region Transit in launching the deployment of standardized and fully interoperable battery electric buses and high-powered overhead on-route charging systems in partnership with manufacturers. Is working with private industry um, a way to ensure public transit projects move forward and are built? And I don't know, Scott, if you wanted to kick this off being the... the... Yeah, absolutely. So certainly this is a, a milestone project for Brampton Transit. And, um, you know, in May of this, uh, in 2021, we actually launched, it's actually the largest global deployment at that time. Uh, fully interoperable battery electric buses and high-powered overhead charging systems. So, uh, tremendous accomplishment um, through the work done by Yasupa and her team at Qtrick, our you know partnership with TransLink and YRT, as well as our our industry partners, New Flyer, Novabus, ABB, and Siemens. And um, you know, I, I think in general, the transit industry is 
is more evolutionary rather than revolutionary. So we tend to, you know, follow the path of least resistance, take the, the, the least amount of risk. Uh, we don't want to be in, on the bleeding edge of technology, but it doesn't mean you sit back and wait years for things to progress. So, you know, I think transit as a whole has a, has a long history of working with private industry, um, you know, from all the planning and consulting work that we've been talking about to the uh, design and construction and, and you know, for some transit agencies, even the operation and ongoing maintenance of our system. So certainly that history is there. And I think it's critical for, for public transit agencies to be nimble and agile in order to take advantage of some of these um, unique opportunities that present themselves, as in case with the Qtrick uh, battery electric uh, pan-Canadian trial. Um, I think, you know, obviously you need strong council support and be able to be uh, advocates for, uh, for these types of projects to influence uh, the, the success of them. Um, and, um, you know, I think this groundbreaking project was, was really only possible by working with private industry. Again, um, you know, prior to this project, systems were not interoperable. So, you know, Brampton Transit could procure an electric bus, for example, from New Flyer. New Flyer would provide the electric bus and all the associated infrastructure. Um, however, you know, in the next year, if we went out for competitive procurement and we awarded perhaps Nova Bus, uh, the tender for electric buses, then, you know, the system would come with a Nova bus proprietary system and the two systems would never be able to talk to each other, which just isn't sustainable for the future. So this project specifically is incredibly important to the industry. It sets the, the whole groundwork for interoperability and, um, you know, certainly working with the OSPA and her team at Qtrick has, has enabled, uh, enabled us as an industry to move that needle forward. So I think that's really important. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in and add to that. And Scott, thanks very much for that. But it's a reciprocal appreciation because to make it happen, um, it's not just companies philosophically want to do it. You need to have really good ambassadors and champions. Scott's one of those champions. Like we faced every challenge possible you could imagine to stop the project. And you had a team at Brampton through Scott Gilner and his colleagues, um, Alex Milojevic and the team there that just kept going. Like they wouldn't take no for an answer. Same at TransLink, same at York Region. That's unique. And the reason why it's such a cutting edge project is because the bulk of transit said no to the project. When we presented to several transit agencies across Canada, it was too risky. It was too new. There was too much innovation work. And when we started that project, Scott, you may recall, I mean, at the end of it, it was TransLink York Region and Brampton left standing. It started with eight transit agencies, including St. Catharines, all of which exited. St. Catharines, Oakville, Durham, at some point they exited when it got too tough. Now, that's not you know, a criticism of the agencies. They, they weren't able to have everything lined up, to have a champion at agency plus a champion mayor plus a champion council. Plus, you, you had to have a lot of pluses lined up in order for them to face every kind of opposition that we face to get this project out the door. And that's just on the transit side. On the manufacturing side, just to set it in context for your, your colleagues on the line, um, it sounds so easy, like a collaboration makes sense. Let's do it, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and we'll get these projects out the door. But in fact, in this project, like it was a very simple proposition. Get the high power chargers that cost a million bucks a pop to interoperate with any bus. So a new standard had to be baked into the manufacturing of it, right? At that time, the standard wasn't published. So we were looking for a protocol that everybody could align with. And there was a standards group, the SAE, that was trying to get this standard published using this project as an empirical example. I kid you not, there were lawsuits being proposed. Some manufacturers absolutely were opposed to this because they were selling proprietary technology early days and making a profit off it. There were patent lawsuits, some of which are still pending uh, off of that. We were threatened with lawsuits and injunctions to stop the project by manufacturers that did not want to support it. So to get the manufacturers that did support it, in this case, ABB and Siemens and New Flyer Nova Bus, they really sunk millions of dollars in losses to make this thing work to get a standard out the door. But that's what you have to line up and then face all the lawsuits of the opposing end of the equation where profits being made on not that solution. So these consortium projects, they do move the, the dialogue forward and they certainly change the landscape, but they are really hard to do. And when you reach out to industry players, there's not a lot out there that are willing to sink millions of dollars in lost investment with the hope that this will work and the hope that it will become the norm. This project has resulted in that norm and lots of clientele, but it could have easily not. And the autonomous shuttle one is an example where a lot of investment has happened and it hasn't resulted in clientele for a lot of OEMs. So uh, tough to get it out the door, but possible to do 
with the right champions at the table. So two, just two key follow-up points on that. I was remiss, and, and I should also acknowledge, obviously, that the federal funding uh, component of this project was was huge. It wouldn't have been possible to to undertake this project without, uh, you know, specifically Minister McKenna and, and her strong advocacy for the federal funding required to support this. So, in Brampton's case, um, the federal government supported about seventy percent of the total project cost, which was incredible. Um, and so, yeah, just wanted to mention that. Um, and as well, the other unique aspect of this project for the battery electric trial is that not only are these OEMs, you know, having to come to the table, but they have to come to the table and work with their com direct competitors uh, in a collaborative way um, under the governance structure of this project. So that was a very unique and first time uh, approach where we actually had competitive OEMs um, working together for the greater good of, of achieving this interoperability project. So. Uh, really unique project and, and I've been thankful to be a part of it. So, All right. Another question from our audience here. I think a tough one. <laughs> With a one sentence answer, why does it take so long to build public transit? Who wants to go first? <laughs> In one sentence, one it's sentence. complicated. <laughs> That's pretty good. Anyone else want to add on that or a separate sentence? <laughs> Maybe we can have a paragraph together. I'll add the PR sentence, which is, you know, healthcare is complicated too. So is public education. But we believe as Canadians, it's part of our DNA. So making it part of our DNA as a national fabric would make it easier. How about David Scott? Do you guys want to add anything to that one? No, those are great comments. <laughs> My one sentence was going to be it's very complicated. But... Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, okay. So next question here is, it's no secret global pandemic has hit public transit particularly hard. Toronto, Edmonton, Vancouver. I mean, we've seen the numbers uh, in other major urban centers as well. They're all reporting operating shortfalls. What does a post-pandemic future look like for public transit and how much of an effect will the past two years have on current sort of future transit projects? Uh, maybe I can talk from the, our, our perspective at the municipal level. Um, you know, certainly the pandemic has hit us hard, just like every other transit agency uh, you know, in the world virtually. Um, we are fortunate in that Brampton is, is actually trending uh, at about 80 to 90 percent of our pre-pandemic levels uh, today. Uh, I think our year-to-date average today is, is right around that 80 percent mark. So um, our ridership is returning. We're fortunate that in, in Brampton's case anyway, we have a strong captive ridership base. So, um, you know, we have a lot of, of, of young riders um, and, um, you know, riders that just use transit. They're, they're just up to it. They're technologically savvy. Uh, it's a young ridership. And, um, you know, even with all the COVID-19 safety measures that are still in place today, uh, some of our routes are actually exceeding pre-pandemic or, or 2019 levels. So, um, you know, it's great. No, no secret there's going to be a shortfall there and there is a shortfall there, but um, we're thankful for, you know, the safe restart funding that we've received and, and other funds that help us um, kind of absorb those losses moving forward. But, um, you know, I think recovering completely uh, is going to be a combination of, of retooling some of our, our you know, planning to, to accommodate some of the changes perhaps in, in travel patterns. Um, you know, no secret, remote, remote working and, and working from home is going to change the landscape, I think, long term. And we've seen that in, um, you know, the return to work, especially downtown Toronto, for example. Mm -hmm. um, look at, you know, office building capacities, um, you know, trips and transit that are ending in downtown financial district, for example, in the city aren't expected to fully recover until such time that those building occupancy rates return back to pre-COVID levels. And in the case, even, you know, my wife's building, she's, she's downtown. Um, they sold off, they had, I think, five floors on Bay Street. They sold off two of their floors completely. And her and her whole team is now working from home uh, permanently. So, I mean, it, it is going to change the landscape. And I think through um, you know, Brampton's update to the transportation master plan. We're doing our five-year business plan update and, and, and those uh, studies will help us determine exactly how we need to retool, uh, what impacts that might have, you know, short, medium and longer term and how we adjust our fleet plan to accommodate that. Uh, but projects like electrification, thankfully, can move forward, uh, you know, even in, in, even in, the, in the face of change. Uh, those types of projects can move forward and help the economy and the environment as we move them along. It's interesting having or hearing your perspective, Scott, um, just comparing Brampton Transit's recovery to GO. I think GO is about that 30% of, of 2019 boarding, so very different 
recovery from Brampton Transit. I think uh, across GTHA, for all agencies that use Presto, we're at about 60% of 2019 boarding. So there's a ton of variation and recovery there. So that's where we are today. And then if we think about planning for an uncertain future, in a certain way, we've always planned for an uncertain future. We've always considered sensitivity tests and thought about what if the land is developed differently or what if there's a different population employment uh, realized than is than we assumed in our analysis. So we've, we've always sort of considered these sensitivity tests for uncertain futures. It's just that now the future seems a little more uncertain. Our crystal ball is even more foggy than it was previously. And how we're addressing this from a planning perspective is we're considering sensitivity tests for recovery in the future. So what if ridership never gets back to 100% or what if it what if we're always 10% lower than we are forecasting? How does that impact the decisions that we're making about different infrastructure choices? And then I think also if we think about you know, infrastructure and how we can build that and, and set ourselves up to best use it in an uncertain future, I think there's two sort of elements that we need to consider. One is that ensuring the hard infrastructure is built to allow for flexible operations. So ensuring we have on rail systems, turnbacks in place and at strategic locations. So you can offer different service levels at different portions of the line as, as demand grows and changes. And then also the softer enabling elements like the contracts that underpin operations, allowing for uh, flexible, adaptable service levels over the course of the project life cycle. So there's, there's opportunity to uh, address and plan for these uncertain futures in our planning, in our infrastructure delivery, and in our commercial contracts. So many facets to consider. Maybe if I may, Karina, um, I, I'm going to take uh, Scott kind of completely different stance to both of you. I, I'm going to say, nope, I, a statistician in me says regression to the mean. We're coming roaring back. This might not happen in six months. I fully expect we're going to be at crush capacity again. I don't buy this. The world has changed forever and labor's changed forever. Uh, uh, we might have some work from home for the upper middle class and white collar jobs, a few days at home, a few days at the site, maybe some businesses downsize some space, but we work offices, eat it right back up for all the startups and small businesses that couldn't afford space in downtown Toronto in the first instance. I don't believe for a moment that 10 years from now we're going to be facing the pandemic environment has changed us fundamentally from a work-life standpoint. But let's say it did. Let's say it did. And those transit riders stayed away. I still don't believe that we're going to be in a lesser capacity. Not at all. It's the opposite. I'm not worried about back to pre-pandemic. I'm worried about the beyond pre-pandemic. The, all of the migration and the refugees and the immigrants that Canada rightly is welcoming into this country. Okay, our borders were closed during the pandemic to a trickle. We are opening up as we should. Canada is one of the few climate refugee nations in the world where we know in the next 50 years, we have a good chance of surviving and a whole bunch of other places in the world do not. Half of the Syrian crisis is explained by arable land problems. And we face what that first flow of migration looked like. And that was a shocker to us. The world is about to enter a climate crisis period where people will look for safe places to live. And Canada is one of those places. Add to that then the major cities of the world. Toronto is a place where people come, especially the well-skilled upper middle-class immigrants of the world that we have restricted in our immigration policies. They come in order to achieve a better quality of life. That is not changing. That is opening up and we are welcoming those folks in. They've got to live somewhere. And where they are going is the historical places they have gone, like my own parents, the big cities of Canada. And those cities need to absorb all of these new Canadians that are coming in. So I don't believe for a moment that 10 years from now, we're going to be struggling with what about our transit ridership? We're going to be struggling with how do we absorb two to three times the transit ridership? And then thirdly, forget even the immigrants. Forget the pandemic. Let's look just at climate policy that we have to pass if we're even mildly serious about Paris climate action. The only way to address Paris climate action goals and to achieve them, reduce car emissions. We have to radically kill the car. How do you do that? Whether we like it or not, we price kilometers, we put on toll roads, we limit highway space, not expand it. Where are these people going to go to get to their places of work? They're going to go on the train and the bus and the streetcar. So the reality is if we're serious about climate action, even forgetting climate crisis out there, migration flows and refugees and immigrants that we welcome in and forgetting all the people working from home, if we're going to price roads, which we will need to, and get people out of their cars, which we will need to, even if they're fully electrified, 
they need more transit. So our transit system is going to have to absorb that influx into the blood supply chain. All of that combined tells me 10 years from now, I very much hope we are having a discussion and I fully predict that we will be having a discussion about how to double, triple the capacity of our transit systems in order to make this nation movable in the way that it's going to have to be in 2050 while achieving, if we're serious, climate action goals. So that's what I would see happening. I think the pandemic was just a little breather for transit to get its head around the complexities of electrification. But hopefully we're coming roaring back with increased capacity. I may be wrong. Just looking at that from a Brampton perspective, you know, our 2015 transportation master plan then projected almost a doubling of our fleet. So we've got about 473 buses now. They were projecting at that time by 2031 to increase to about 860 buses uh, based on our extreme ridership growth. And, you know, we're seeing that ridership recover. Uh, so to your point, if I think, you know, time, time will come where we are far exceeding, um, you know, what our expectations are in terms of recovery from the pandemic. And, and I think you're right. And we're seeing that ridership recover while people are working from home still. Yep. You know, I have to underscore that. So when we say ridership is starting to recover and lots of us are still working from home. So what happens when we all start not or even just start two to three days a week or shift our mode? Maybe we're not going to Toronto, but we're going from Markham to Mississauga. It's still a commute that has to be accommodated. I think, David, you wanted to jump in there, too. For Well, I was just going to say, especially if you think about these long time horizons that we've been talking about, you know, 10, 15, 20 years that... Uh, Oh, that's a great observation. We have, I don't know if you could do it in 30 seconds. <laughs> we have two minutes left. Um, <clears throat> is there a project or an initiative that you think is worth checking out? Uh, I would say have a shout out as your final thoughts on that um, so that our attendees today can can maybe check it out since we don't have time to go into talking about each of those projects. But David, any project that you would suggest our attendees today should check out is something that they could you know, learn from, copy, replicate, something they should know? <laughs> well, we've, I mean, we've definitely got a, a couple of projects right now um, in construction is the Broadway uh, subway extension and then planning is the Surrey-Langley um, Skytrain extension. So both of those projects have uh, project sites on, under those names and there's quite a bit of um, planning and, and business case uh, documentation and about the about the region and and uh, transit ridership and, and lots of good things there. So, great, thank you, Yosipa. Uh, I would just shed light, uh, Scott. I think the e-bus project is wonderful, as you know, but I want to shed some light on the Mississauga hydrogen fuel cell bus project that we're working on. So hard in Canada, we're innovators in hydrogen tech, and no fuel cell buses on the road. And that is largely because there's no local green hydrogen supply chain. So that one's pretty unique. Uh, local hydrogen supply chain in Markham feeding fuel cell buses in Mississauga for full zero emissions technology, a first in Canada. Fantastic. Scott? Um, I mean, released last summer, I think July, um, we've been working with the Canada Infrastructure Bank on uh, a financing arrangement with them for uh, 400 up to 400 million dollars to acquire 450 um, zero emission buses and, and that negotiation has been going on for the better part of, of well since july of last year and we're, we're quite close to to finalizing things with canada infrastructure bank so stay tuned for uh, some exciting <laughs> announcements to come uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, on that hopefully and um, that'll certainly pave our way forward in terms of being able to finance the higher upfront cost of a zero emission bus versus a, a conventional diesel or a hybrid bus. And, and that's essential financing that the city needs to, to be able to move forward with our, our, our electrification pathway. So um, yeah, stay tuned on that one. And if there's any municipal transit agencies out there that are interested in learning how that process works, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to, to talk. Thank you. And Kaya. I mean, how could I pick just one? There's so much happening in our region. There's tons of public material available on our website. One one thing that's kind of fun and different is Metrolinks recently started a podcast. So some of those episodes are Ask Me Anything formats. Some of them include specialists from our different teams. It's a fun listen if you're learning or if you're keen to get an inside view into the organization or or what's on the minds of transit leaders in our region. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We wouldn't be able to host important discussions like this without the generous support of our industry and certainly our awesome panelists. In May, we'll be back again with a team of experts to discuss Canada's ports. 
Canada will see significant investment in port infrastructure over the coming decade as efforts continue to expand capacity at several of the country's largest ports in order to meet growing demand. There's a lot happening at Canadian ports, so please don't miss out uh, what's guaranteed to be an insightful conversation. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Infra-Intelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.